0: As we begin this morning, I'd like to read um, some verses from Jeremiah chapter 17. They contrast cursing with blessing. Beginning in verse 5 of Jeremiah 17, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed, by contrast now, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its root by the stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green they will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit." We were uh, by the Cloud River and watching the river flow by through the canyon and right down next to the river, all these, if you've been there, you know all these big leaf plants, you know what they're called, but they look like big paddy leaves down there, and all along the river, they're just luxuriantly <laughs> blossoming away there and right in the midst of a hot valley. And it's sort of like the contrast we see here in this particular uh, passage. So let's pray together this morning. And as we pray, let's remember Peter Kopp as he is speaking. Some of you have already been to the service, so you've you've heard him. uh, And he speaks now and in the third service as well. So, Father, we are so grateful to you that we have experienced your blessing, which doesn't mean we don't have trials and tribulations, but means that our root is in the water of your truth and of who you are and that we always flourish in faith no matter what the storm or desert conditions might be around us. Oh, Father, we pray that our lives will be a blessing and not a cursing to those that are around us, those whose lives we impact. We're so grateful, Lord, that we can trust in you and pray that You will be our guide and our strength. Trust You, Lord, to direct us in our study of Your Word, that we might understand that it is the Word of God that gives us uh, not only truth, but gives us the very essence of life. Lord, may we grow in the Word of God each and every day. I ask You for Peter Kopp, that You will anoint him now as he will speak during the second service and yet later in the third service, that you'll give him wisdom and insight and empowerment, Father, that the message that he is bringing this day will touch the hearts and lives of all of us, challenge us in the ways you want us to be challenged, that we might respond in accordance with your Spirit's direction. Lord, uh, bless each one here this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 12th chapter of Second Samuel, we are at verse 15. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead for they said, behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me." Nathan, of course, was the prophet of God. Nathan was the man who was anointed to speak the word of truth to David in the midst of David's folly. And Nathan literally put his life in his hands to do that, because David was the absolute king of Israel. This was not a democracy that David was ruling. And if David was offended by Nathan, David uh, could have had Nathan executed. But Nathan boldly proclaimed God's word before David. It appears that the prophecy that he gave, which was, if you go back into the previous passage, which we looked at uh, last week, Nathan had said that because David had caused men To blaspheme the living God, the child born of Bathsheba would die. And it seems that as almost as soon as Nathan left the premises, walked out of the royal palace, that the child took ill and began the process of dying. Probably no more than a few days at the very most after the time Nathan left. Maybe even the day he left. We don't know. It just seems to have been in a very short period of time. Verse 15 tells us very plainly that the Lord sent the illness to the child. The Lord was the author of the illness. Also, we find that it's interesting how the child is referred to. The scripture says that the child was born to Uriah's widow. It doesn't say the child was born to David's wife, but to born to Uriah's widow. Sin may be forgiven by God, sin may be forgiven as well by man, but the social and psychological impact of that sin and the stigma it produces can remain for a very, very long time. The reason the baby died was the blasphemy that was hurled against God because of David's folly. David was God's foremost example of godliness. What man in all of Israel stood in a better position to proclaim the truth of God and to exhibit the truth of God in his life than David, a man who had walked with God from his youth, who had written numerous psalms before this particular time? And what greater exhibit does Satan have than to point to David, God's man, as the man who committed all this vileness, this adulterous relationship, and then the attempted cover-up by murdering Bathsheba's husband, and that's why she became Uriah's widow. We discover in the passage that David is quite aware of the fact that the child's death is of the Lord, that it's God's hand of chastisement on him because Nathan had told him so, and he believed him. But what does David do here? Does David rebel against God and say, well, if that's the way God is going to be, I don't want to walk with him anyway. No, David submits to the chastisement. David does not have an ill word for God, doesn't even have an ill attitude towards God, but he pursues God's grace. In the midst of chastisement, David pursues the grace of God. He intercedes for the child. Nathan has said, because of your sin, the child will die, and yet David intercedes with God on behalf of the child. He committed himself to a week of fasting and prayer, not just fasting and prayer while he went around doing his normal things, which could kind of occupy your mind a little bit so you're not paying so much attention to your fasting and your hunger pains, but fasting and prayer while he's prostrate on the ground interceding on behalf of of this child how long can a week be in that condition the implication is that he resisted all efforts by those around him to comfort him the, the courtiers of the palaces his, his men in waiting as it were were coming by and they were trying to pick him up off the ground they were trying to get him to go eat they wanted him to take care of himself they were very much distressed that their king was was out of, out of it, you might say. I mean, obviously, for a week, he wasn't doing any kingly things. And they were very distressed. They were concerned, of course, about his mental condition. David's counselors and his servants were so alarmed by his extreme actions that they were almost beside themselves. But I think one of the very important lessons that comes out of this was that David's public humiliation would be a valuable lesson to these courtiers, to these individuals who were watching this happen, seeing what David was doing, experiencing his pain with him. They were learning a lesson. They were learning the lesson of how horrible are the consequences of sin. That a man would go through such excruciating, uh, such an excruciating week, uh, beseeching God because of the consequences of his sin. His sin had become public knowledge. And now the terrible consequences of his sin would be public knowledge as well. But what we find in all of this, one of the most powerful lessons that comes out of this, is the genuineness of David's repentance. This was not a trite, momentary, flippant, Oh, yes, I'm sorry for my sin, I won't do it again. This was a genuine transformation of this man's soul. I mean, he, 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 was, he, he purged himself, that is, allowed God to purge him uh, of his sin. And he returned to God wholeheartedly and totally. And this is demonstrated by this effort that he puts forth to intercede for this child. Very few of us ever put ourselves into prayer to that extent a whole week flat on our faces in fasting and prayer. Socially, politically, it actually would have been better for David and Bathsheba if the child were not to live. Because if the child dies, the child disappears. And and the child is no longer there to be pointed to by others and mockingly saying, look, this is the fruit of David's folly. What kind of a godly man is this, David? This is the product of his folly, of his adultery, and of his murder. But David is concerned that the child live. David is interceding for the child to survive, knowing that this child would be a forever reminder to him and to everyone of his adultery with Bathsheba. Seems at this point now, he's more concerned with the life of his son than he is with his own reputation. How is that the opposite of what he was before? He did everything he could to cover up his sin, to not let anybody know because he was afraid for his reputation and now he doesn't cons- he's not even concerned about his reputation. He wants the child to live, even though the child would forever be a signpost and a reminder of his sin. This is a symbol of godliness. Helps to understand the truth of what it means to be transformed by the living God. Humility and concern for others are very powerful signs of godliness. Pride and selfishness are powerful signs of sinfulness, of a life not committed to God. That's why when you see someone who pretends or at least claims to be a Christian, but they're living in a very prideful, selfish way, it's hard to put the two together because they don't go together. As explained in this passage, the leaders of David's court were so concerned about his physical and his mental health while he was interceding for his son that they were afraid what would happen to him if he heard that his son had died. What's going to happen if he's in this condition while the child lives? What will be his condition if the child dies? They were afraid he would just go totally to pieces. He might even lose his mind and no longer be able to rule the land. But what's interesting is that although David is prostrate on the floor and praying and interceding on behalf of his son, he knows what's going on around him. You'll notice he perceives that some of his servants are now whispering amongst themselves. They're talking about, what are we going to do? The child has died. How can we possibly tell David? And David perceives this. So David says, what are you guys whispering about? (laughs) What are you saying over there? Is the child dead? (laughs) Now what are they going to do? What choice do they have but to say, yes, the child has died? I think they did it very reluctantly because they were afraid of the impact it would have on David. But they confirmed his suspicion that the child had died. What happened next? Both amazed and relieved David's servants. Instead of collapsing into despondency and just becoming a total bowl of jello on the floor there, as they feared he would, David got up on his own, got up, cleaned himself up, went into the tent of God. Remember, David had set up a tent, not the tabernacle tent, because that has been, that is gone. But he set up a tent, and he, and he brought the Ark of the Covenant into it in the city of Jerusalem. And so he goes to that tent, and he worships God there. And then he goes to his own house, and he says, I want dinner. And he sits down and eats a meal. He broke his fast. But notice he did not break his fast until after he had worshiped the Lord. He didn't say, bring me a Big Mac, I am starving. He went before God. I would, wouldn't it have been wonderful to have a little tape recorder and hear what David said before God there? Well, next week we're going to focus on the 51st Psalm because that fits right into the context here and it's very possible that that Psalm was at least maybe uh, brought to David's mind during that time in the tabernacle or or we don't know exactly when during this whole course that uh, that psalm became a song that he sang to the Lord in the midst of his transformation. But his courtiers were very confused (laughs) What is this, you know, he's so despondent while the child lives and now he acts like nothing's happened after the child dies. How can this be? And, And David, of course, gives that wonderful response that we read in verses 22 and 23. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and the child may live, but now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Shall I go to him? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. This is a powerful testimony to these courtiers of the nature of God. Even in the midst of his discipline, the terrible discipline David was going through for the horrible sin that he had committed, David understood that God was gracious and merciful. And if you remember the story of Jonah... Jonah understood that also, and that's why he didn't want to go tell the Assyrians. Because he was afraid God would be merciful to them. And he wanted God to be merciful to him because he hated the Assyrians. All the Israelites hated the Assyrians. The the Assyrians were the Nazis of that day, or at least they would become the Nazis of that day. And, you know, he didn't want to see them, you know, see the mercy of God poured out on them. and, And so he understood what David understood. God is merciful. God is gracious to his people. To those that come in repentance and and humility before him, he is gracious and he is merciful. And, And the discipline that he may have to pour out upon us, the chastisement, as David experienced, he doesn't do it with glee. He does it because that is what will purge and perfect us. Actually, the death of the child itself was an act of God's grace and mercy. Three ways I think we can see this. First, when the child died as a result of the chastisement of God. Now, if the child had died and they hadn't been told by Nathan that the child was dying for this reason, this may not have uh, been true. But but since they were told that the child would die as chastisement on David because he had caused others to blaspheme the name of the living God, once the child had died and David had been through this this week of, of fasting and prayer, there was a purging. Because the, uh, the, the weight of the sin, uh, the, of, of the uh, horrendous result of that sin was lifted from his shoulders. A kind of a wholesome emotion of being freed from this overwhelmed him and even certainly impacted David, uh, Bathsheba to some extent. They had gone through the deserved discipline, and now they move beyond that. That's an act of God's grace and mercy. Secondly, it removed the cause celeb, the rallying point for those who would oppose God and David and point this to this child as a living proof that David was an evil, was an evil man, that even the best of God's servants were, in effect, evil men. Uh, that was removed and would no longer be there. That's an act of God's grace and mercy. He could have let, let the child live, and, and David, every time he saw his son, would, would have this sinking feeling inside him. That's how God wants us to live. He doesn't want us to live with with this recurring, sinking feeling of of how evil we are. Yes, we are sinners, but God has saved us by His grace and His mercy, and He wants us to live in joy and peace. And then thirdly, as I mentioned uh, last week, it was an act of God's grace and mercy because where did that child go? That child went instantly into the presence of God. And I, I, I tried to emphasize last time, it would not have been an enjoyable life for that child. All his life to be looked upon as, as the bastard of David, you might say. Oh, yes, the child was born within wedlock, huh, but was conceived outside of wedlock in the midst of, of David's horrendous sin. And, and that would be attributed to him, as I also pointed out last week, and this is one of the strangest points i don't understand but it's true down through the course of history in almost every society that the illegitimate child is blamed for his illegitimacy which is ignorant that means it's stupid none of us can be blamed for our birth we had nothing to do with it we just happened to be there but this child would have carried that stigma all of his life it would not have been even though he would have been a, a royal prince He would have been considered uh, by the other royal princes like Amnon and Absalom and and, uh, all the rest of them, he would have been considered a very inferior person. David's statement at the end of verse 23, which we read a moment ago, reflects upon the permanence and the inevitability of death. The child could not come back to David. The child was gone. The child could not come back to David because the child had gone to Sheol, the abode of the dead, and nobody came back from Sheol into the living world. David, of course, knew that one day he would go there too because that is the destination of all men and women is, in the Old Testament, the concept was Sheol, this this rather nebulous, hazily understood place of of the dead where the dead were not slapped into a cold grave and and just, you know, ceased to exist, but where they continued in existence uh, beyond the grave. Even though Sheol was a very mysterious place, even to David, he knew that his son was in God's hands. And that was the joy that gave him the ability to get up, wash his face, and, and, you know, worship God and move on because he knew his son was where God would have him to be. Therefore, he doesn't wail like the pagans did. Oh, my child is gone and wail and cut themselves and do all the things that the pagans did in the surrounding nations. Why? Because you can't bring the child back and the child's in a better place anyway, so what's the purpose of the wailing? Let me read some uh, words from Jesus in the 18th chapter of Matthew. I, I have a strong suspicion most of you believe this, but I want to just kind of confirm it in our minds. Eighteen chapter of Matthew, beginning at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself, and he set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. That six verses always sent shivers up my spine when I think of people who who do terrible things to small children, whether it be mental, physical, or spiritual. But over in the 19th chapter... Uh, Jesus said these words in verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. We can interpret both those passages uh, as meaning uh, different things. But I think over the years of uh, reading the Word of God and studying it, um, myself and probably most of you have come to the understanding of the nature of God. And I'm, I'm fully convinced that every tribe, every tongue, every nation in human history is already represented in the kingdom of heaven. That there probably has never been a tribe or a nation of people on the face of this planet that is not represented already in the kingdom of heaven before the throne of God. Because children have died in those societies. Children have died in miscarriages. Children have died in stillbirth. Children have died in early years of their lives. Where would those children go but into the hands of the heavenly Father? because they would die before they would be at a place where they could consciously know what it is to purposely yield to the world, the flesh, and the devil and go the way of the world and, and, and to reject whatever truth they might have or might not even have of God. When At what point in time does one understand the consequences of sin? I don't believe that there is one single universal age of accountability as we sometimes hear it. I, can't, I don't think that you can just say, well... You know, everybody below eight goes to heaven if they die. Everybody over eight goes to hell if they die without knowing Christ. I I don't think that's true. I I think that the age depends. The age is is dependent on the individual. It's dependent on the culture in which the individual has grown up. I've known children who were conscious enough of their sin, of the reality of God, that they've come to know the Lord in a literal life-transforming way at three and four years of age and yet others who don't really seem to understand at at a much older age than that. I think throughout Scripture we find God's compassion on children, not only in these words of Jesus here, but how many times does God castigate those that harm orphans? And widows, of course. I think God has a special (laughs) place in His heart for children. As we read in Matthew 19, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, of course, we can say, well, what Jesus was saying there is that you have to become childlike in order to gain the faith, sufficient faith to enter heaven. Well, yeah, but who has that faith to begin with, naturally? The child. I believe that Jesus meant, when he said these words in Matthew 19, that the kingdom of heaven was already literally inhabited by millions of children who have died down through the ages, even in societies where the name of God was not even known. Now, if you go to the first chapter of Romans, you discover that in the first chapter of Romans, God talks about the, uh, Paul talks about by God's inspiration, the fact that he is known all over the world in his creation and in the very image of god that's been implanted in each one of us as ecclesiastes says that each of us god has planted eternity in our hearts the image of god is there and so god can speak to people who have not even ever heard of the actual bible and and the teaching of the bible and of course many of you have heard many stories of the the so-called uh Uh, of the Karen people of India and and the peace child concept and all these other things that have happened where missionaries have walked into society and found them totally ready to receive the gospel because they already basically believed it, just didn't know know what names to plug in to the the right places. And so I believe that heaven's gonna be a very full place. And even though it's tragic when a a little child dies, I I think that we should feel um, comfort in that, that child is with God. I really believe that to be true. If we go on in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Public knowledge of the death of this baby tended to focus on David's pain because it was David who had been lying there on the ground for a week in, in the presence of his, of his counselors. And the word, of course, had spread abroad beyond the palace and, and into the city of Jerusalem. And they knew their king was in great pain uh, on behalf of this dying child. But what was the pain of Bathsheba? She was the mother of the child. Her pain had to be equal or greater than the pain of David." And so David, understanding this, decides to go in and to comfort his wife Bathsheba. God had comforted him through this loss. That's why he could get up from the floor, he could wash his face, he could change his clothes and go into the temple of God and worship and then go eat. He could do that because he had received the comfort of God in the midst of his sorrow. And now he could, with, with understanding, and with compassion and empathy, he could go and spend time with Bathsheba in her pain. In just one year, this woman's life had become topsy-turvy. Ever since David laid eyes upon her from the palace rooftop, she had been subject to tremendous emotional stresses. Now I'd like to highlight just five ways in which this woman experienced tremendous emotional Pressure through this, this year. First of all, she was involved in adultery. And adultery in that society bore the penalty of death. In effect, she knew she had participated in an activity that could result in her death. Secondly, her husband, wh- whatever were her feelings about her husband, were never told. But her husband was callously murdered by her adulterous lover. Thirdly, she was taken into the king's palace shortly after the death of her husband, after she had gone through the proper mourning period, under highly suspect conditions. And can you imagine what welcome she received from David's other wives and children? Oh, we're so happy to have you here, Bathsheba. I don't think so. I, I, you know, I think she was, you know, like a big letter A carved on her, you know, uh, as she moved in uh, to the palace. Fourthly, her new husband had been read the riot act publicly by Nathan the prophet. Right down the other side, Nathan had pointed out, you are the man. Well, that indicted her too, because she was implicated in the adultery. And then fifthly, And finally, the tragic loss of her firstborn son. You know, that's really just about more than a person can handle in a year of time of tragedy in their life. Now, of course, there's there's always the question of her culpability. To what extent was she also responsible for this happening? Well, we can only surmise. But David was the primary responsible party. He is the one who inflicted the pain upon Bathsheba. Whatever, you know, she was doing down there, it was his response that brought this pain into her life. David acknowledged before God and man, including Bathsheba, his sin. And David, therefore, was able to accept the responsibility and to exhibit godliness Love and compassion to his wife. We're going to read in the next chapter about one of David's sons who has his way with a woman. And as soon as he does, he wants her out of his sight. He wants nothing more to do with her. David loves this woman. He takes his responsibility for her and with her. And he had received comfort from God in the midst of this tragedy. And he now shares the inside of that comfort with his wife. I think he talked to her, and I think he told her about what his feelings had been and, and what he had gone through there on the floor through that seven days of fasting and prayer. And I think he explained to her of the grace and the mercy of God. We, we don't know what her walk with the Lord was before she came into David's house. And, of course, that reminds us, I'm, I'm certain it did, many of you, of the passage in, in 2 Corinthians chapter. 1 Second Corinthians chapter 1, passage which is uh, frequently referred to, uh, verses 3 and 4, which helps us to understand in part why problems and trials come into our lives. As you well know, there are those who believe in a gospel of name it, claim it, health and wealth, that, that bad things should never happen to godly people. Christians should never have a bad time. They should never be sick. They should never be poor. None of these other things that if you're sick or you're poor, that means that you're not a good Christian. You know, a lot of other bogus stuff that is so foreign to what Scripture teaches. But 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. (laughs) It's very plain. We are to transfer that comfort into the lives of one another as we have been comforted by God. And of course you could see that if you, if you think about that for a moment, as I am comforted and I share that comfort with others, and they are comforted by God and they yet share that comfort with others beyond that, you could just see how this would multiply through the church. I mean, it would spread, it, it, it would be, uh, you know, what, what is it, um, exponential in its growth. As members of the body of Christ, it's our privilege not only to experience the comfort of God when we go through difficult, even shattering experiences. Now some of us go through pains of one kind, some of us go through pains of others, they're not equal. But, but David went through a horrible time here, shattering physically, shattering emotionally, shattering spiritually, as, and Bathsheba as well. And God was there to comfort him. Then we are to share God's comfort with one another those who are going through similar trials that we may have experienced. Everything God does for us, He does not only to bless you and me, but to bless others through us. God's blessings are never for us to hoard. Say, oh, this is God's blessing, I'm going to keep it all for myself. No, it's to pour out and through us on the whole body of Christ. It's. Harder for us in, in the Western culture, who we're, we're so used to our little individualistic kind of attitude towards life, uh, me, myself, and I, I'm a, God, I'm a self-made man. You know, I have my little white picket fence around my house, and nobody is to ever transgress that except by my invitation. To, to understand that the Christian church is not made up of solitary, self-sufficient individuals. The Church of Jesus Christ is a worldwide community of interdependent believers. That in some cultures, it's not as hard to grasp as it is in ours. Because some cultures, they already live in community. They always already live interdependently. But, but we live so independently that to, to think that we are actually interdependent. We need each other. And of course, we all know the whole uh, picture uh, Paul gives us of the body. And then somebody's a thumb and somebody's an eye and somebody's an ear, so to speak. <laughs> and we all need each other. We often don't live that way. To the degree that God enables us, we're responsible to minister to one another. Not only here amongst ourselves, but in the church universal. And, and we have a little bit of privilege of doing that by, by praying for, for families such as the Zoffis and the Cops and, and the many others that, that we pray for here. But in and, and any other way that we can help and, and to encourage and, and to bless and, and to be a part of the extension of the body of Christ. Well, in his desire to comfort Bathsheba, David made it clear that his love for her had not diminished, as opposed to his own son Amnon, who in the next chapter is a despicable man. He does not blame her for the tragedy of this past year. How many homes are broken up because a tragedy happens and the husband and wife blame each other for it, rather than joining together and uniting together and going through the struggle together and and supporting each other and and sharing the love of Christ they battle and they struggle and they blame and and usually end up being divided well David does not throw out Bathsheba she remains in his household unfortunately as one of his wives but nevertheless as his wife but of course as we know and and we'll, we'll develop it a little bit more next week she will give birth to the heir the throne. Not the oldest son of David. Usually thrones are passed from eldest son to eldest son to eldest son. You look through the history of most countries and that's the way that, well, most western countries anyway. This isn't exactly a western country we're talking about here, but even in the Middle East, that's usually the way it was. Went from eldest son to eldest son. But that isn't going to happen because God is going to choose the man. And of course, many of David's older sons will be dead by then. Because God had said the sword is not going to depart from your house, David, because of the folly which you have committed. So next week we'll, we'll look at the birth of Solomon and then I want to spend some time with the 51st Psalm uh, because it fits so beautifully here in this um, spot.